0: We talked about one wide receiver last week. Above all others, one wide receiver peaked my interest and my curiosity heading into Week 15. One guy. His name, of course. Hands up! Hands
1: Hands 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 Was Kalen Cole?
0: Keelin' Cole. Uh! What are you getting for Christmas? Lump of Keelin' Cole. Keelin' cold as ice! Oh, you knew! Oh, you had to know! We would close out the year with a Keelin' Cole dance party! Of course! Of course! Celebrating in the face! Of all those fantasy analysts complaining on social media, oh, all this Keelan Cole production helps nobody. Sad-faced emoji. Aw, doesn't help your fantasy team that Keelan Cole's exploding? Well, it's helping my podcast. It's helping my Twitter account. So it's helping me. That's who it's helping. No one cares about your fantasy team. Oh, you started D.D. Westbrook over Keelan Cole and you're tilting? I don't care. I have Keelan Cole stashed on my taxi squad across Dynasty Leagues. His value skyrocketed last week on a percentage basis more than any other receiver. Even DeAndre Hopkins, who's now being viewed as the number one wide receiver in Dynasty Leagues. But Keelan Cole's Dynasty value is rising at at a much higher rate than even DeAndre Hopkins. And I love it! This is why Player Profiler exists, to find Keelan Cole before he posts seven receptions for 186 yards and a touchdown, 31.6 fantasy points, the most of any wide receiver in week 15, and Keelan Cole is the first relatively obscure wide receiver to be the weekly fantasy point leader since Adam Thielen in week 16 of 2016. That's right. Remember Adam Thielen? Percolating just below the surface and then BAM! In week 16. 44 fantasy points. Ha <laughs> ha Over 200 yards from Adam Thielen. You have to be good to go out and roll up over 200 receiving yards. Wide receiver position is different than the running back position in that regard. Jonas Gray can go out and post a fluky 200-yard game with four touchdowns. Wide receiver like Adam Thielen posts over 200 yards and two touchdowns. It's not a fluke. Keelan Cole is not a fluke. Keelan Cole is for real. But he wasn't the only obscure wide receiver to flash last week. He's just the only one that's for real. We know this because Cole was a small school mega producer. It's easy to know which wide receivers will be beloved by the playerprofiler.com user community. Check the Dominator rating 60.7%. That's 98th percentile. <laughs> right? I mean, it's going to happen for a guy like Keelan Cole. You might say, well, he only ran a 4.64. That's an 83.7 speed score. That's 17th percentile. He's not explosive. Well, I don't know what happened at his pro day. I wasn't there, but I know at Kentucky Wesleyan, his yards per reception was 24.6, which is 98th percentile. So, he's explosive. Measurables or no measurables. Oh, felt so good to have a Keelan Cole dance party to close out the year. Yeah! He's filling in seamlessly for Marquise Lee and Allen Hearns. Marquise Lee and Allen Hearns are officially expendable. I mean, Hearns for sure, because he signed a contract extension that the Jaguars can get out of pretty painlessly this offseason. Then Marquise Lee's still on a rookie deal. Meanwhile, the Jaguars seem to have their wide receiver core of the future in Allen Robinson, DeeDee Westbrook, and now Keelan Cole, because Keelan Cole looks the part of a volume slot receiver at the NFL level. I mean, he's already flashing as a rookie. Most of the time, the undrafted yet prolific... Small school slot receiver takes at least two years to receive an opportunity and break through. But with injuries to Allen Robinson and Allen Hearns and Marquise Lee in week 15, Keelan Cole finally received his opportunity. With starter snaps, what did he do? Led all wide receivers in fantasy points. Yeah. So the Jaguars could release Allen Hearns and not extend Marquise Lee. I mean, the Jaguars are a juggernaut right now. And they will be for the foreseeable future because this is a young, vicious defense. But I'm not include Jaden Mickens in the Jaguars' long-term plans. I mean, please, please. Mickens is a fun story, but he's like a slow Demir Bird. And I'm not excited about Demir Bird either. I mean, Demir Bird has a cool name. He has great athleticism and he is comparable to player profiler favorite Marquise Goodwin. But the bad news is he's one of the smallest receivers in the NFL, and he was not productive at the college level. So Demir Bird becoming a thing would be a huge upset. Don't be surprised if last week's two touchdowns are the last touchdowns Bird ever scores. But at least Bird's quarterback is Cam Newton. Mickens' quarterback is Blake Bortles. And even with injuries to Alan Hearns, Allen Robinson, and Marquise Lee, Jaden Mickens still isn't the starter so explain to me how Jaden Mickens has any dynasty value I don't see it at least we can argue that Demir Bird has secured a role in that Panthers passing game in 2018 so Demir Bird worth a flyer in dynasty Jaden Mickens not so much what about Tavares King he flashed oh yes yes oh yeah Tavares King where the hell have you been all year Tavares King's Target share and hog rate, which is targets per snap on playerprofiler.com, both outside the top 75 NFL wide receivers. In a season in which Odell Beckham Jr. only played a handful of games, that's an indictment. And Tavares King wasn't even efficient when targeted. Yards per route run, less than one, 99th in the league. Yards per target, 6.5, 78th in the league. And he's 27. At this point, Tavares King is what he is, and he is not good. What about Cody Latimer, though? Is Cody Latimer a late bloomer? Is it possible? Now, Cody Latimer has flashed some big-time athleticism this season. Target premium, plus 36.2. So on a per-target basis, Cody Latimer is providing significantly more fantasy points than the other receivers in that Broncos passing game. 36.2 is number three in the NFL. And air yards per target, 5.3, that's number five in the NFL, so he's getting downfield and making splash plays. He's translating his athleticism onto the football field for the first time since he was drafted in 2014. I mean, Cody Latimer has been that shining outlier from the 2014 draft class. Seemingly the only receiver drafted in the first two rounds in 2014 not to flash at all. Until this year, he has flashed. He's delivering splash plays, but it's pretty late in the game for a second round pick to start producing. So, like Demir Bird, I'm happy to stash Cody Latimer and Dynasty, but I'm not very hopeful. Remember, Cody Latimer began the season behind Benny Fowler on the depth chart. After three seasons, where the coaching staff was incentivized to get their second round pick, reps in practice, snaps in games and latimer continued to fail and fail and fail but he ended up failing up this is how it works with draft capital the players eventually fail their way up then they're in the right place the right time score a touchdown suddenly oh 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 cody latimer kind of intriguing could be a late bloomer i don't know yeah i know very 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 unlikely that cody latimer ever becomes a real thing Focus your attention on Keelan Cole. Get him stashed in Dynasty Leagues if you have not already. And I'm reading that this is the week that Dak Prescott re-emerges as a top fantasy option because of the presence of Ezekiel Elliott. If you're playing Dak Prescott over better options such as Nick Foles and Phillip Rivers and Alex Smith and Jared Goff and Jameis Winston, that would be a mistake. Granted, Dak Prescott has been one of the league's worst fantasy quarterbacks without Ezekiel Elliott this year. I can't dispute that. What I can dispute is the assertion that Ezekiel Elliott's absence caused Dak Prescott to underwhelm and significantly miss expectations the last six weeks. Because that is a correlation trap. Making that one single thing the reason for a performance on the football field is always a mistake. Always, always, always the oversimplified, this one thing is the reason style analysis is the roots of the worst analysis in fantasy football, and it leads to suboptimal fantasy roster management and ultimately losses in the fantasy playoffs. Correlation traps in fantasy football can cripple otherwise championship rosters. The worst fantasy analysis is correlation based because it attempts to link cause and effect to auxiliary factors and forces. I implore you to zoom out and to focus on the drivers of production, primarily the player themselves. That's what Player Profiler is all about focusing your attention on the player and their ability rather than attributing performance to outside forces and externalities. That should be your one takeaway from this fantasy football season. That. Focus your attention on the player. Cancel out the noise. Anything not tethered to that player's ability or his opportunity is ancillary. That's Occam's razor in practice in fantasy football. But as Nassim Tlaib explained in Fooled by Randomness and his most popular book, Black Swan, humans seem to be evolutionary predisposed to see patterns and are psychologically inclined to gather information that supports pre-existing views. Confirmation bias. Always looking for the answers to explain the phenomenon. Or in the case of fantasy football, the performances on the field. And that zeal for answers leads us to often confuse coincidence with correlation and correlation with causality. Correlation does not equal causation. I'm compelled to reply with that statement to multiple tweets per hour on Twitter. Bad correlation-based analysis is so pervasive. There is a website called Spurious Correlations showing correlations between hilariously unrelated phenomenon. And when I look at these graphs, I can't help but think of fantasy football. Per capita consumption of mozzarella cheese correlates closely with civil engineering doctorates awarded. Per capita consumption of chicken correlates with total U.S. crude oil imports. And most famously, crime correlates with drug abuse. Except these one-to-one correlations ignore a third untracked variable that actually drives the relationship. In the case of crime and drug abuse, it's unemployment. Crime does not cause drug abuse, and drug abuse does not cause crime. The more meaningful cause is unemployment. You see this right now with the L.A. Rams. Oh, yes. The L.A. Rams' resurgence correlates with the hiring of Sean McVeigh. And you can go back to his time with Washington. Washington's offensive efficiency rises with McVeigh. When he leaves, it declines. Rams' offensive efficiency declines with Jeff Fisher. Sean McVay arrives. It rises accordingly. Sean McVay must be the reason. Except there's an underlying factor driving the performance on the field. Something critical. The engine of the offense was dramatically improved this offseason in Los Angeles while being severely degraded in Washington since Sean McVay left. And that's the offensive line play. Jared Goff's protection rate in 2016, number 29 in the NFL. This year, he's in the top half. Todd Gurley's run blocking efficiency last year, number 24 in the NFL on PlayerProfiler.com. This season, number one in the NFL. The offensive line has been reborn in Los Angeles. The offensive line drives performance. It protects the quarterback, gives him extra time to throw. It opens wide running lanes for the running back. When the offensive line crumbles, offensive efficiency implodes. This is what we're seeing in Washington. It's not about Sean McVay. Todd Gurley is scoring 24.0 fantasy points per game primarily because he has the best run-blocking unit in football. Jared Goff is scoring 17 fantasy points per game up from... 8.9 fantasy points per game in 2016 because he has more time to throw and his supporting cast was dramatically improved this offseason. No team invested more in their wide receiver core this offseason than the Rams. They brought in Sammy Watkins, former first round pick, Robert Woods, and drafted Cooper Cup as well as move tight end Gerald Everett. And you can see the supporting cast efficiency in Los Angeles, plus 5.01, number nine in the NFL on playerprofiler.com. All the talent around Jared Goff has improved dramatically, much more than any quarterback in the NFL. Just in time for him to move into his second year at the quarterback position. By far and away the most significant year for quarterback growth and development. The second-year leap for quarterbacks is a thing. Ask Carson Wentz. Ask Derek Carr. Look at the statistical profile of most NFL quarterbacks, and you will see a significant efficiency increase from their rookie season to their sophomore season. Dan Marino's second-year leap was the most famous. He went from 2,200 yards in 1983 to over 5,000 yards and 48 touchdowns and a Super Bowl appearance in 1984. So Jared Goff's own growth and development combined with a significant supporting cast talent upgrade are the primary drivers behind his ascendance, not the coach on the sideline wearing khakis not playing football. But we like to envision ourselves in the shoes of the coach because we can. We can't envision ourselves playing on the field, that would be terrifying, but we can envision ourselves with the headset on, looking at that laminated sheet, whispering plays into a headset. We can envision ourselves in the shoes of a head coach so we, so we can project our abilities onto the coach in a way we cannot with the players. Those are the roots of coach-based analysis. And correlating relationships, just another tool in that bad analysis kit that so many football writers proudly wield. And when you look at Dak Prescott, his supporting cast has not changed other than his protection rate this season has decreased. So he has less time to throw. I think that what you've seen from Dak Prescott this season is what he is. He's some combination of early season Dak Prescott and late season Dak Prescott. He is his season averages. There's no evidence going back through time that running back quality significantly influences quarterback production. But that's the power of confirmation bias. So many analysts revere Ezekiel Elliott and they go out seeking proof that losing Ezekiel Elliott is the reason for Dallas' second half failure, when actually the reason is a fundamentally flawed defense and a degraded offensive line. Because look at the running back efficiency. Alfred Morris and Rod Smith have a higher yards per carry this season than Ezekiel Elliott. You might say, well, Ezekiel Elliott commands the attention of the defense, right? Teams stacked the front against Elliott. That's not true. Safeties may creep up, but teams are not taking safeties off the field because of Ezekiel Elliott. They are when facing the Jaguars and Leonard Fournette. Oh, yes. Leonard Fournette's percentage of carries against stacked fronts, 16.4% on player profiler. Ezekiel Elliott's is only 73 The actual evidence suggests that the narrative that the presence of Ezekiel Elliott props up Dak Prescott is a fallacy. Defenses do not game plan to stop Ezekiel Elliott. It's a quarterback-centric league. Against Blake Bortles and Tom Savage, sure, safeties can freely move up at will. Teams can swap out safeties for linebackers. But when competent quarterbacks are in the game, defenses don't have that luxury. Against Drew Brees, for example, safeties stay back. And this is why Brees targets running backs by far and away more than any other quarterback the last decade. The safeties stay back and those... Running backs have extra space to operate in the passing game. i found, above all others, that the analysis around Ezekiel Elliott, in particular, is the most flawed. But correlation-based analysis does have some value as long as you're looking at enough data. Using thousands of instances back through time, we've come to the meaningful conclusion that targets are what drive wide receiver production, for example. Look at Devin Funches two weeks ago. He was facing Xavier Rhodes in the Vikings' defense. And he was still a top 20 fantasy wide receiver because he received double-digit targets. Targets matter much more than efficiency. Yet, most analysis revolves around projecting efficiency week to week. And that's a mistake. We also know that matchups matter most for running backs, less so for quarterbacks, and even less so for wide receivers. All the more reason to continue to play wide receivers who project to receive a high target share. For wide receivers, you must follow the targets because football is inherently random football is susceptible to incredible in-game forces that divert the outcomes 20 different times in 20 different directions this is before you factor in fantasy scoring systems which are agonizingly random because even ppr leagues are td centric It's almost like the founders of fantasy football had a medieval torture device fetish by making TDs such a disproportionate component of fantasy football scoring. And few events on the football field are as random as the touchdown. It's why I don't play in standard leagues, because they're too heavily weighted to touchdowns. Just look at Travis Kelsey two weeks ago. He had three touchdowns taken off the board. One overturned down at the one-inch line, one right through his hands on a five-yard slant and another one overturned by penalty many of you out there are not in the fantasy super bowl this week because travis kelsey did not score any of those touchdowns in week 14 if there is one consistent thing about football it is unpredictableness this chaotic yet infrequently played sport is an engine of small sample based fallacies and correlation traps it's why correlation-based analysis is particularly dangerous in football as opposed to other sports. Knowing this, it is important to challenge anyone attributing cause and effect with absolute certainty, especially with neat scatterplot graphs. No, that ain't me. Fall back on the factors that you know drive performance that have been proven over many years with thousands of events and outcomes. Focus on the talent profile. Focus on the volume. And in the case of Dak Prescott, if you must focus on some external force influencing his performance, focus on the offensive line's protection and the receiver efficiency, not the run game efficiency. And beyond the randomness of the sport of football, which is then compounded by fantasy football scoring, football has a small sample problem. There are only 16 games in a regular season. I know everyone knows that. But it seems to me that not everyone knows that and really understands what that means, that there's only 16 games in a season. Players can go their entire career with very few realities about their ability being proven with statistical significance, far fewer than other sports. But that's not stopping football analysts from running out to best case scenario on Jimmy Garoppolo. Oh, no. Jimmy Garoppolo is not merely the next Tony Romo. He's an improved version of Romo. Already, Jimmy Garoppolo has started four games in his career. Four. Four full games. And already, he's Tony Romo 2.0. And Granted, Jimmy Garoppolo's best comparable player on playerprofiler.com is in fact Tony Romo. And his Tony Romo comp is the closest QB comp in the player profiler database. That is all true. They're both 6'2". They both weigh 230 pounds. They have the same agility score. Similar college yards per attempt. Similar college completion percentage. At the same college, Eastern Illinois of all places. I mean, it's a stunning comp. And they're stylistically similar. It seems that Jimmy Garoppolo models his throwing motion after Tony Romo. I mean, seeing an analytics-based comparison become a reality on the field stylistically Puts me in my happy place. But I'm not ready to anoint Jimmy Garoppolo, the NFL's next elite quarterback. No! It's a small sample trap! It's a trap! It needs to be the name of this show, Jimmy Garoppolo Trap Game. An entire fantasy football podcast dedicated to traps. It's all we've discussed today. And even as Garoppolo logs more games, I will still be skeptical. Remember Josh Freeman? Remember Nick Foles? We were fooled by randomness. And the quarterback position, in particular, is the most difficult position to evaluate in all of sports. It is a hall of mirrors. Be prepared before you walk in there believing that what you see from the quarterbacks you're watching is reality. Oftentimes, it is not. I mean, just look at Blake Bortle's performance last week over 300 yards. Three touchdowns, no turnovers. How the fuck did that happen? Well, the Houston Texans, that's how. I'm getting questions on Twitter. When are you going to move Jimmy Garoppolo up in the Dynasty rankings? He's been in the mid-teens for weeks. We knew Jimmy Garoppolo would quickly enter the Jameis Winston echelon of the rankings. And check out the Dynasty rankings, playerprofiler.com forward slash player dash rankings. And I'm not ready to move Jimmy Garoppolo ahead of a Jameis Winston. I'm just not. Oh, Jimmy Garoppolo had two straight 300-yard games. Okay. Jameis Winston had three just this season, and he had a stretch of five games in which he threw for 300 yards in four of them. Jameis Winston has 10 career 300-yard games. Jimmy Garoppolo has two, and Jameis Winston's younger. Well, got to ticket Jimmy Garoppolo for your top 10 dynasty quarterbacks. Why? Hype hype. Yes, he's comparable to Tony Romo, but player comps provide intrigue. They spark conversations. They stimulate you to look further, dig deeper in a player's profile, but you should not draw definitive conclusions from player comps ever. That's not what they're there for. Oh, Keelan Cole's best comparable to Titus Davis. That's a good thing. Titus Davis was a college mega producer. I'm surprised even today that Titus Davis never broke out. To so stop leading with the player comp in your analysis. It has low relevance. Not as low as the coach. It's better than coach-based analysis. but still bad. And by the way, who did Jimmy Garoppolo throw for 300 yards against? Oh yeah, Houston. The same team Blake Bortles just carved up. And Tennessee. Two of the league's worst pass defenses. Fade the hype. And don't trade Jimmy Garoppolo away. Just don't overspend for Jimmy Garoppolo yet. Let him play two more games. How hard is that? And when the coach is waved around as the reason for the performance, for the improvement, my first instinct is to go back and look at the schedule. Because I went back and looked at the Rams schedule from 2016 to 2017. And guess what I found? Oh, yes. The Rams went from having the most difficult schedule in 2016 to a much more quarterback-friendly schedule this year, facing the AFC South and teams like the Houston Texans and the Indianapolis Colts. And this week, the Tennessee Titans will be warmly welcomed to Los Angeles. And don't forget the NFC East opponents. The Rams face this year. Oh, yes, the Giants' pass defense, the Cowboys' pass defense, and those interdivision opponents did not provide the same challenge this season. The Arizona Cardinals have been degraded, and no team has been more injury-ravaged than the Seattle Seahawks. This explains the great Los Angeles Rams' resurgence. Their players' own personal improvement, a significantly improved supporting cast, and a confluence of external forces providing the team with a tailwind to ride throughout the season as opposed to the headwind that they faced last season. And the more I see the same correlation traps regurgitated over and over and over again, the more I question them. The most pervasive correlation trap of the moment is the assertion that Jeff Fisher is a QB killer. Why? Because Jared Goff ascended in his second year under Sean McVay. And Jeff Fisher couldn't get anything out of Nick Foles. He couldn't get anything out of Case Keenum. I'm reading that Vince Young should make a comeback because his potential was railroaded by Jeff Fisher. Jeff Fisher betrayed him. Now, as I mentioned, I can't say much about player ability with absolute certainty in the NFL. But I know this. Vince Young stinks. Not an NFL quarterback. Regardless of who's wearing the headsets on the sideline when he's taking snaps. I mean, do I think Jeff Fisher is a good coach? No. Do I think Jeff Fisher is sub-replacement? Yes. I think if you look at the available coaches in the coaching pool, you'll find one better than Jeff Fisher every time. That's true. But anytime you identify the coach as the primary reason for player performance, you're always wrong. Always, always, always. But that's all you're seeing now with Los Angeles Rams analysis. And this continued gleeful mockery of Jeff Fisher. Enough already. Like, enough. I mean, it is the hallmark of the unfunny person that they hold on to old jokes too long because they have no new material. So they just keep going back to the same worn-out premise. Jeff Fisher is the quintessential old, haggard, incompetent coach. Yeah? And? You know your coach-based analysis has jumped the shark when the sports pickle is leading the way. When the sports pickle gets a hold of a narrative, you know it's become a cliche because at Sport Pickle wrote on Twitter, Jared Goff, Case Keenum, and now Nick Foles, imagine how good Steve McNair would have been if not stuck with that idiot Jeff Fisher. Yeah, idiot. Yeah. Clever job, Pickle. I'm not a Jeff Fisher apologist, but when the mockery in the echo chamber gets deafening, it's time to take a step back and question where this herd of mindless sheep is headed. And I know it's a flock. I know. I know. But a herd of sheep implies it's even more mindless. I know. I know, buzzards. I know it's a flock. I get it. I know groups of animals. So at this point in time, I believe Jeff Fisher to be underrated. Because the sports pickle is drawing strong conclusions by comparison shopping three quarterbacks whose performances intersected with a coach's tenure. The problem is that's not a controlled experiment. The situation that Case Keenum finds himself in in Minnesota is far different than what he faced with the Rams. The situation that Nick Foles now finds himself in in Philadelphia is much different than his situation in St. Louis. And now, as we mentioned earlier, Jared Goff is set up for success in a way he was not previously. So as it turns out, in my quest to be the least coach-centric analyst in the history of football, I have somehow become pro-Jeff Fisher.